0: This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern.
1: You're listening to Unite and Heal America, KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And uh, I've got Katie Surma on the program. She's a fellow at Inside Climate News. Uh, Katie, you've been covering the rights of nature story, and I'd like to hear uh, why that's important and and, uh, what's going on in that area right now.
2: Sure. Uh, so the rights of nature is a legal approach to environmental protection that uses legislation, constitutional provisions and uh, sometimes court rulings uh, to give elements of nature like rivers and forests or sometimes whole ecosystems, a unique legal rights. Uh, so sometimes rivers are granted the rights to flow and be free from pollution. Um, And and this is something that's happened in countries uh, across the world within over 30 U.S. communities. And it's, um, you know, people are getting behind the movement in large part because they see existing laws as, you know, failing them and putting, failing to stop the ecological crisis that that we're seeing happening now.
1: Uh, Where would this... uh where would this be extended or how this, how could this be extended to other areas like uh, related to air since uh, air is kind of the primary, um, you know, thing that is getting polluted, which is causing the most important climate problems.
2: Yeah. So with the rights of nature, you know, I haven't seen a law that says, you know, that nature has an inherent right to have clean air. Um, Certainly that could be part of it. There's, there is a parallel sort of idea that there's a human right to a clean climate, which is that, I'm not sure if that's, that's, that's what you're getting at or not. Um, But.
1: So broad, vague, and ambiguous that you could, you could answer it any way you
2: want. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think uh, with rights of nature laws, you know the idea is to per, protect and preserve ecosystems. Um, and certainly, you know, pollution in the air as well as in the water or, or whatnot would be considered an infringement of those rights depending on how the rights are articulated in whatever legislation um, is out there.
1: Well, just to bring it home to our viewer or listeners in Southern California, the right to flow or the rights of rivers, how that could impact uh, us would be like the Los Angeles River has been encased in concrete and it has uh, essentially been uh, channeled out to the ocean and um, it used to run kind of wild. So it used to bounce all over the, the LA basin because it was kind of a wild river. Uh, and now it is entrenched in concrete Uh, which has some deleterious effects because the water doesn't seep in the groundwater and uh, the, you know, soil isn't uh, brought down from the mountains and deposited there and so on and so forth. But um, how, how could uh, we shift that in a way that is somewhat still manageable because having uh, the LA river jumping around the LA basin could be problematic as well.
2: To be honest, I don't know, you know, how that, you know, the, if that river, for instance, was given the right to flow naturally. I don't know how that would, you know, play out as far as, you know, the interests of the communities who live around there to, to be safe from, you know, flooding or something like that. Um, it, you know, the, the laws are are more sort of uh, with, with a mind towards, you know, future actions. So. You know the government is going to permit, uh, you know, additional development that's going to pollute the river. You know we need to we need to elevate the standing of of this river to, you know, have consideration at the table when this decision to permit is being made versus you know after the fact, um, is doesn't, my understanding. Doesn't that
1: already kind of exist in that uh, we have the Clean Air and Clean Water Act or acts which. Um, You know, people are not supposed to dump pollutants into the rivers or lakes or streams in the U.S. currently.
2: Uh, So rights of nature laws are different from existing environmental laws like that. So the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, the the ideas behind them are that we, you know, we're going to allow pollution. We're just going to regulate the extent or the pace of that pollution the idea behind the rights of nature laws are, you know, we are elevating the, what, how humans think about nature, that it is a, you know, a co-equal existing living thing like humans. And so, you know, by giving it legal rights, this is a, a higher form of protection. Um, and it's not, I don't think it's, you know, starry eyed about the fact that, pollution development these things are still going to happen but i
1: in mean, for one second here uh, i mean humans are also uh, subjected to certain levels of pollution so it's not as if rivers are somehow treated better than humans because uh, many of us humans are subjected to pollution every day so or all of us are so it's not like we're somehow uh Elevated beyond, or elevated beyond rivers and streams. In that respect,
2: right? But I mean, we are the ones that are causing these problems. Um, you know, and and uh, you know, human beings, the the philosophical sort of underpinnings behind existing Western law. And again, I'm, I should clarify that you know, I'm I'm speaking to this as a as a journalist as you know, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm trying to articulate the arguments that advocates make. Um, But that, you know, it's, it's about human exceptionalism that, you know, these are all laws and systems that have been put in place so that humans can benefit. And, you know, people who, who are behind the rights of nature movement want to flip that. Um, And, you know, think about it think about law in a more egocentric way, that we're 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 designing things and making decisions based off of the well-being of the earth as an end in and of itself, not just for the benefit of humans. Does that
1: yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Um you know I sometimes I think there's some degree of semantics in there because if we actually eliminated pollution for humans it would certainly eliminate pollutions for rivers and streams and lakes and and the like so um but i understand the concept of actually considering it from a the entity of a river what effect does this pollution have on a river well it might have effects that uh I can't think I'm having a hard time thinking of effect, the a deleterious effect that it has on a river that wouldn't it wouldn't have on a human. Um, but I guess it theoretically it might. You Maybe you could tell me how it would be any way different.
2: Yeah, well, so, um, for instance, there's a situation in Peru that I'm writing about right now. And, you know, uh, plaintiffs, a uh, community nearby polluted rivers, you know, sued a company that was um, responsible for the pollution and they settled and the community took the money and you know used that money to, in whatever way it wanted to but it didn't use the money to remediate the river to remediate the damage and so you know, a rights of nature law would give standing to that river to sue the company for the damage, and whatever settlement it got would go towards remediating the river, the damage. So you take the human out of it, and and there's other sort of situations like that um, where things sh- would shake out differently to the benefit of the ecosystem.
1: Well, that that certainly is something to be considered. I believe that uh, U.S. environmental laws generally require some degree of remediation if uh, there's been some finding that they have uh, soiled uh, or you know, soil is probably the wrong word, polluted uh, the soil or rivers. Um, but I don't know if that always is the case, because certainly humans get compensation from those cases as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think that there's a way to you know, at least under existing law, we don't we don't care for ecosystems for the sake of the ecosystems. Um, it is about human beings, and I don't think that's wrong uh, that we care about human beings. That's a very good thing, and it's great that you know. I think everyone can agree that environmental justice um, is becoming, uh, you know, is it, getting the attention it deserves. Um, well, I'm
1: gonna stop you right there, Katie, and we're gonna to go to break. And uh, You're listening to Unite and Hill America on KBC 790. My guest, Katie Serma, uh, who is a fellow at Inside Climate News, will be right back. And I was talking to a prior guest, a scientist at uh, University of California, Irvine, uh, Dr. Brower, Jack Brower, uh, and he informed me last week that uh, the first earth shot that the Biden administration had announced was creating hydrogen at one kilo, $1 per kilogram, um, and bringing the price down to that level, which would be less than the price of gasoline. Um, I think the problem for the Biden administration is that nobody knows about this. uh, uh so part of what worked in president Kennedy's, uh, we're going to have a man on the moon in a decade was that it kind of got a splash in the news and and people were talking about it, and there was a conversation um, and essentially that that news isn't news, and if we're going to have something like that occur, I think we've got to focus more energy and attention on it. It truly would be revolutionary it truly would shift the problem. And I've, I'm a big proponent of hydrogen have had you now two hydrogen cars. Um, so I, I believe that it is something we should be focusing on yet. We're not hearing about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, hearing, hearing you talk it out and, and in the comparison to, to Kennedy's moonshot, I can't help but think, you know, I mean, there's a stark difference, right. Between the going to the moon and hydrogen energy. I wonder how many Americans are even aware that hydrogen as a source of energy, hydrogen can be a source of energy or is a source of energy. The, just the general awareness in the public of, you know, clean energy. It's, it's not there people. I mean, and I don't, I wouldn't blame people for not being interested in it. Um, but you know, maybe there's a sort of disconnect between the the framing as as this being a, you know, an, an earth shot versus the reality that this is sort of a wonky issue. Yeah, I, I think that.
1: Well, when you look at in terms of how this could change the world, certainly the ability of hydrogen to be the power source of the planet uh, is. Has more relevance to everybody on the planet than putting somebody on the moon. And putting somebody on the moon is is like a great show, and it's a great you know feat of technological prowess. And I, I don't want to put it down, but in terms of actual effect on day to day life, it really doesn't have a whole lot. Didn't have that much effect on our day to day existence. Um, and I think. It's a failure of communication to not have the public more aware about what hydrogen energy is and what it could do and why it's important. And why are not why are people not talking about it? Why do people not understand it? Um, these are these are failures in communicating from the environmental movement, from political leaders that they're not discussing it. They don't understand it. They haven't educated themselves about it. And therefore, the public isn't engaged on it.
2: Yeah, I agree with you there that, you know, this is something that can be not just life changing for us, but future generations, uh, for sure. And yeah, communication, definitely. But but education as well. Uh, people, you know. You know, how many how many kids growing up in their their schools are learning about, you know, the, these issues on a on a deep enough level. Um, but beyond that, I mean, when there's so many other things to be distracted by and pay attention to, um, you know, worrying about alternate sources of energy just doesn't seem to be high on the agenda for for so many people. Um you know, I'm wondering. You know, how how is, if you're a communications person working for the government or even a private company that's that's working on this issue, you know, how do you how do you successfully convey that message to people to get them to care about it? Um, it's probably a million dollar question.
1: Well, I I had somebody on the show a few months back who was an advertising uh, agent or advertising executive and his son had challenged him, uh, Dad, what are you doing about the environmental movement? And he's like, uh, nothing. And he said, uh, you got 48 hours to, to come up with a plan of what you're going to do to help improve the environment. And so he got out of his Rolodex and started calling people and uh, said, hey, what, what do you think we could do? And and so he talked about creating a, a nonprofit that messaged Uh, about the environment more effectively because the messaging is not very good and not very effective in the terminology that's being used. And so they started a group of mothers again, uh, mothers for the climate because figured that moms can communicate this message very effectively and they're all scientists. So that was a uh, effective messaging tool. I, I feel like, um, I'm going to indict uh, the press here for a minute since you're part of the press and I don't want you to get off (laughs) scot-free, you know, is that I don't believe the press has has covered this very effectively. And uh, looking at, hey, from somebody who runs an organization, it's not rather, it's not particularly large. We only have like 50 people, but you have to focus on to certain things. So we have to like figure out, Hey, what are the most important things to focus on and focus on those? Maybe there are three to five things. And, and partially our attention is so scattered. And I feel like the environmental coverage is so scattered sometimes in ways that are talking about things that ultimately are in my mind, trivial. If we do not solve the major problems, like, uh, talking about uh, saving one particular species when we're not talking about saving the entire ecosystem uh, is maybe short-sighted. I think maybe we could focus more on what are, you know, some kind of internal agreement as to these are our most important issues, which we don't really have.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that you're right that there's been mistakes uh, that have been made, and I and I think that's something that generally the you know I always take issue with you know the media or journalism in like this this uh, you know just overarching term because there there's such a spectrum right of of organizations and even within an organization different journalists that cover different things um, so. You know, when we're talking about just serious news organizations, you know, uh, within that realm, I think they've been very upfront that, yes, mistakes have been made in the past, and particularly with the false equivalence for a long time about climate change, that, you know, you have both siderisms, that, you know, this side says it's happening and this side says it doesn't, even though science is pretty, um, pretty solid, that, yes, this is happening and, and humans are causing it. Um, but but beyond that, you know, I, I, I really when people ask me, you know, wh- what should people do? How can they get good information? You know, seeking out journalists who really know their stuff um, and following them or following their work. I'll you know, because we're talking about hydrogen, I'll throw out a shout out to one of my colleagues, Dan Garino. And in inside climate news is, is a great guy to follow on clean energy. Um but, yeah, I mean, I think it, the media is never going to come to, you know, an agreement on, you know, what what are the most important things to cover? But but they're getting better. And I think more environment and climate reporters are joining or I shouldn't say they're joining, but but big news organizations are hiring um, more journalists in this area and putting more oomph in, into their coverage. And and I think it's going to get better and better and better. And it, and it seems to me that, that it already is.
1: Uh, Yeah. Has it improved? Uh, Yeah, I would say it has improved. Uh, I I just think that we don't have time to kind of continue to make, in my mind, very big mistakes in in the coverage. And and in part. uh, It's that uh, people aren't covering the most important things and that uh, just just like the Biden administration isn't communicating their Earth shot very effectively, the press isn't covering it very effectively because they don't understand it. And so they just leave it alone and it just gets put on the back burner and nobody hears about it versus we're hearing all kinds of trivial stories all the time that to me are, you know, just meaningless chatter. But the the most important things that we should be focusing our attention on, educating the public about are just not being talked about. And to me, that's a travesty. So I, um, I encourage, you know, all of us to, to focus on those more important items because otherwise uh, we're wasting our time and we don't have time to waste. So uh, you're listening to KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host of Unite and Heal America. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Mattern and uh, our guest today, Katie Surma, as well as we've got Christopher Berry on the show. And uh, Christopher, welcome. Uh, Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Hi, Christopher. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, your background and the work that you're doing currently.
0: Yeah, I'm a I'm a managing attorney at the animal legal defense fund, which is a an animal protection nonprofit. Uh, um, and uh, what I do there is a, is impact litigation, essentially. So uh, find lawsuits on on behalf of animals, uh, you know, wildlife, uh, animals on farms and so forth, uh, and, and try to set a legal precedent or, or have a on the ground impact for them. And uh, how long have you been working at the organization? Yeah, I've been at the Animal Legal Defense Fund for, for ten years. I I joined uh, straight out of law school, so I've spent my my entire career there. That's
1: great. Uh, um, so, what cases are you currently working on there?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, it really it, it runs the gamut. The and the one that uh, that's been uh, in the, in the news a lot recently was uh, an application uh for discovery on, on behalf of hippos which, which uh, resulted in a, in a court order recognizing animals as legal persons for the uh, first time in in u.s history actually um and you know in addition to that cases uh you know a, a dog hoarding uh c- case where where we're trying to uh, get an injunction and preserve an injunction against uh, someone who's keeping dogs in violation of uh, animal protection laws uh, in Cal- california you know sued the usda over uh animal welfare act uh action, and you know I, I could i could go on and on but that's so just a little us, sample
1: tell us a little bit about the hippo case because uh recognizing animals as persons as you said is a a novel uh situation and and how is it that the court uh made that leap and what was the court relying upon in in coming to that uh, finding
0: yeah it's um you know this, this ties uh, ties a lot into the discussion about rights of uh, nature t- too but um uh, the background is that Pablo Escobar had hippos. And, and after his downfall, they, they got loose into the environments. And uh, in, in, in particular, uh, the, uh, the Magdalena River in Colombia. And it, because they're uh, invasive, they're from Africa, there was, there was a lawsuit filed on their behalf to have them uh, sterilized rather than killed, which was a, a plan that was being discussed. And uh, Colombia supports uh, not only the right of nature, I mean, the, the Magdalena River where they live has, has been granted legal personhood, um, uh, but also recognizes the animals themselves can have standing. So so this lawsuit was filed in, on, on their behalf. And uh, sorry, it's a little bit of a long-winded answer, but but the short of it is that the United States has a, a law that allows Uh, parties in foreign litigation to come to the United States to collect evidence to help their foreign lawsuit. And so we, uh, we apply directly on behalf of the hippos because they're the named, uh, you know, it's, it's their, they're the, the party in the Columbia lawsuit and uh, a a federal judge approved their application to take testimony of experts here to help their lawsuit, um, finding that they're uh, recognizing that they're uh, quote, interested persons. Uh, e- even under U.S. law by by nature of their status in Colombia.
1: You know, um, you had said that the Magdalena River is a legal person. Um, does Colombia also recognize uh, animals as legal persons?
0: Yeah. The, so Colombia led led really led the way with uh, with, with rivers, uh, you know, including the Magdalena River, uh, having legal personhood. Um, but, uh, you know, subsequent developments in the country have, have really, uh, extended that philosophy to, to, animals as well, you know, and, and, and of course the hippos, they're, they're a part of the, the river ecosystem. Um, you know, they, they, they live in the river. So, uh, it's, uh, it, this really the, an extension of, of, of the same logic, which is that it's not just humans that can have legally recognized interests, right? That, that, that rivers can, uh, or, you know, or hippos can in this case.
1: So anything that's in the uh, river ecosystem would be considered uh, a person by, uh, Columbia law.
0: Well, so I'm not, I'm, uh, not an expert in Columbia law. So I, I don't, I don't know that I would, uh, necessarily necessarily go that far. I, th- I think the, I think the argument I think that's a pretty, pretty tight, tight argument to make. And, and and sort of regardless of how you how you frame or conceptualize it, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, that, that these rivers um, and animals uh, are, are recognized as having uh, distinct interests from humans, but but distinct interests that courts care about. And that's really that's really the sort of the, the bottom line, which is, is it does it have to be a, in, in a human's name for a human's interest or, or can it be in the name of? Uh, in the interest of someone else.
1: Have have we seen any states or local governments in the U.S. Uh, um, give legal personhood to uh, any rivers or any parts of nature?
2: I, I can take that one. Uh, yeah, there's been over 30 local communities and at least six tribal nations in the U.S. that have enacted these laws. Um, they're typically when they are challenged in court are struck down um, just based on, on state preemption usually. Um, But there's an active lawsuit in the state of Florida right now. Orange County is enforcing a law that I think was 87% of voters voted in favor of recognizing the rights of nature in the 2020 election. Um, And the state uh, while actually before the voting took place, but while that law was was being put on the ballot ballot for a vote the state um, preempted it and so there's a there's a showdown happening right now in an or- in orange county
1: and uh for our listeners who aren't familiar with the uh, florida geography where is orange county florida
2: it is the home of disney world
1: <laughs> okay so orlando orlando okay Well, uh, that should be an interesting uh, thing to watch. Are are we seeing any states that are on the cusp of or considering uh, creating uh, rights of nature for rivers or other um,
2: habitats? So also in Florida, there's a push to get a a few rights of nature laws put on the ballot to, to amend the state constitution. I've had sources tell me that there's other states that are considering similar things, but uh, nothing material yet.
1: OK, uh, Christopher, do you, what kind of uh, litigation do you see uh, continuing in the U.S. related to these foreign jurisdictions? And uh, is it likely that it will have an effect on uh, U.S. law or is this still going to just be uh Related to uh, foreign jurisdictions on kind of minor issues that get brought to, uh, or narrower issues that get brought to us through, uh, like the Colombian hippos.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. I, you know, you know, the the order recognizing hippos is interested persons with the ability to essentially uh, propound a subpoena in the United States. You know, that was a. That, that was an order that was granted and it and it wasn't contested either. So that the judge had to find that all the elements were met, including that they were interested persons with, a you know, that should be able to take this discovery, but, but the, um, but it wasn't contested on, you know, and it was, it wasn't an, an appellate decision. So, you know, it's, it's possible that there could be, uh, more of these in the future that could lead to, to case law precedent. Uh, you know, interesting, the Supreme Court has has already weighed in and said that litigants are, you know, no doubt qualify as an interested person. So I, in a way, I actually think it's kind of a in some ways kind of a boring legal issue. But but by contrast, it's it's a it's really paradigm shifting um, it in the sense that this it's, you know, it normalizes and it frames legal personhood for 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 animals uh, for wildlife, um, you know, potentially for other you know kind of strange persons under a legal system, it it normalizes that 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 there is room in our legal system to recognize those legal interests, and so I, I think that I think that demonstration, the example and precedent that it sets, is uh, is really really profound and, and, and paradigm shifting. Um,
1: it certainly is fascinating. I would I would ask you in terms of just uh, discuss this in relationship to like the Endangered Species Act, where, where endangered species, I believe, were given essentially rights um, under U.S. law 50 some years ago.
0: Yeah. You know, interesting. There, were, there was a Ninth Circuit decision a couple of decades ago, Cetacean Community v. Bush where someone had argued that cetacean community, those are like, you know, the, the porpoises and whales and uh, the, that I think it was, a, may have been a Navy sonar case in the Pacific. And they argued that they, that their the animals were the interest, that they were persons withstanding to sue under the endangered species act, which, you know, has a very broad uh, um, citizen provision. The court ruled that while animals, you know, have this potential that they that they can have injuries that could be recognized that just as a matter of statutory interpretation congress didn't the ninth circuit thought that congress didn't intend to give animals that ability through through the statute so it's kind of an unactualized potential through the endangered species act now, now you could you could go to other circuits with that and contest that that, that finding um, But that i think it's it's interesting on its own just to say animals do have that capacity uh potentially if you know should
1: well, Christopher, it's a fascinating conversation and I appreciate uh, you and Katie coming on the show where you're uh, on the cutting edge here, of the Unite and Heal America, uh, listening to uh, how the rights of nature are expanding around the country, around the world, and uh, something we'll be following up on in, in weeks and months to come. We'll be back in just one minute. This is KABC 790. This is Matt Mattern, Unite and Heal America. Listen to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got Katie Surma and uh, Christopher Barry with us. And I just wanted to ask uh, you two a question about um, under the law, there are many different things that are considered persons. And, and maybe, uh, Katie, you want to talk about that and how that relates to the rights of nature.
2: Sure. Um, so we give legal rights to a lot of things that are, are not humans, um, you know, corporations and trusts, um, other forms of businesses, governments and universities and and ships, (laughs) uh, and know, the legal rights they have are tailored to the essence of what they are. And, you know, the rights of nature are legal rights tailored to whatever element of nature As I mentioned before, the right of a river to flow or just of ecosystems to persist. Um, and so in that way, you know, people have argued that this is just an extension of other similar rights movements, whether that's women's suffrage or children's rights. Um, the, 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 those are the arguments that, you know, rights of nature proponents tend to make.
1: Chris, uh, what were your thoughts on that, uh, that question?
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, very similar. It's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the, the legal system is, uh, you know, we, we administer, we administer the legal system. So if, if we think there is value or, or use or, you know, a a moral argument that, uh, that non-human entities should, should be added to, to the mix of, you know, entities with legal personality, then, then we can and should do it. And, and it, It's, you know, in the case of animals uh, or the environment, it's 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 it is very helpful. Um, There are situations where uh, animal cruelty can occur. And if if the animal isn't recognized as having an legal personality with interests that a court will appreciate that then a case to stop that cruelty may may just get thrown out on procedural grounds because you didn't find a human who had sort of coincidentally been injured by witnessing the cruelty, for example. Um, And the same could be said for, uh, you know, in the the case of uh, rights for nature. So it's uh, it it can be it can be tailored, but it's it's a it's a good thing to do.
1: Well, I guess the question is, where do where do we draw those lines uh, in terms of Say we have uh, things that we consider to be pests like rats or things of this nature that, uh, you know, generally considered to be uh, things that we don't want to have around. Uh, If we were to give all animals rights, would they would we be able to uh, deal with pests like
0: rats? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um. I, I think a useful distinction to have in mind is and is sort of the, the difference between a like a substantive legal right that that offers like, you know, like a protection that, like, you know, that you can't be killed except under these circumstances versus um, a, like a mere procedural right, which is that whatever, whatever those protections are. Um, someone can go to court on your behalf in your interest to make sure that those are being enforced. And so in the case of animals, you know, talking about, uh, you know, whether it's this sort of, you know, pest animals or, or uh, animals for f- that are raised for food, that that, that the baseline for legal personhood uh, it, it can just be that those that someone can go to court to enforce those rights and those protections that already exist on their behalf. And there are, the law already exempts, you know, killing animals for food, exempts, uh, you know, killing animals who who are a nuisance or who who are dangerous. So it wouldn't giving conferring legal personality. doesn't necessarily confer more protection to the animal. It just means whatever protection they have can be enforced. And then, and then, you know, of course we, there should still be a debate about whether those are the right protections. Maybe we, we ought to protect them more. And, you know, I think, I certainly think we should, um, but we don't necessarily have to do that just because you let recognize legal personality.
1: Now something, uh, we were talking about, uh, Katie on the break was echo side. And, uh, uh, can you explain to the audience what that is and, and why that uh, is something we should be concerned about going forward?
2: Sure. Uh, Ecocide or ecocide, it's tomato, tomato, uh, is roughly widespread destruction of the environment. So most people, when they hear that, they think about uh, deep water horizon or deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. And right now there's a campaign to criminalize internationally uh, ecocide and never before has international criminal law been used to protect the environment as an end in and of itself. And people behind this campaign um, say that this could be a game changer as far as, for instance, you know, making environmentally destructive projects uninsurable, that sort of thing. Um, They want to do it at the international criminal court. Um, The U S is not a party to that court. So, It tends to fall off the radar of a lot of Americans, but it's a really interesting legal development development that's happening. And um, it's worth paying attention to.
1: It's certainly something that we will uh, have on our radar screen going forward. I I guess I would think uh, that uh, countries like Brazil would probably not want to be a party to that, given the fact that uh, they are engaging in it right now as we speak. So in- indicting themselves essentially, uh, it's not likely to happen, is it?
2: Uh, well, I mean, you know, you have countries that are engaging in genocide that are parties to, you know, the genocide convention. Um, the idea of, you know, joining international treaties that prescribe these things is to protect future generations. And, um, you know, jair bolsonaro for instance there's been multiple complaints filed with the international criminal court accusing him of crimes against humanity um, for covid and also for deforestation of the amazon um you know uh philip the president of the philippines rodrigo duterte um to your point you know he pulled the country out of uh the international criminal court after he was investigated for crimes against humanity for his drug war so um, these things are moving pieces. I don't think you know international justice is ever clear cut, um, but people um, can and are held accountable under these laws. I, I tend to think
1: that maybe something that you said earlier, which is uh, not ensuring these projects and hitting them where the dollars are, uh, may be more effective. And talking about kind of working down the supply chains of of uh, various companies that are using products from the deforestation of the rainforest and, not, and those companies saying, hey, we, we won't do this. And we as consumers saying, we don't want to buy products from companies that are engaged or supporting that kind of behavior kind of cuts it off at the source. Um, maybe not completely, but it, it could be pretty effective.
2: Yeah, there, I mean, there's a huge reputational uh, side of this. And, you know, people behind the side campaign often say nothing concentrates someone's mind more than the possibility that they're going to be in the dock at The Hague at the criminal court. And warlords may not care much about that, but CEOs of multinational corporations do. And, you know, the court only goes after individuals, So the possibility that you could be prosecuted for an international crime um, on this level, whether, you know, it's the head of an insurance company or an oil company, you know, that gets people to pay attention and and that changes behavior. Uh, Anyway, that's the argument.
1: As an American citizen, would any uh, American corporation chief be uh, liable under that law if uh, Americans aren't uh, parties to the treaty?
2: They could be um, so. There's a territorial aspect to the court if a crime is committed on the territory of a country that is a party. So, for instance, a U.S. oil company that's operating on the territory of, you know, in Brazil, which is a, a party to the court. Um, there's also trans-border effects of pollution that of pollution that could raise issues. You know, does a crime committed on the U.S. but that affects Canada? Is that possibly within the, the remit of the court, you know, it's an open question. So there are ways that U.S. companies or, pe- or people can become embroiled.
1: Chris, I'll give you the final word on this subject before we uh, close out the segment. I know that's a bit open-ended question. Maybe I'll reframe it. Uh, is your organization at all uh, working on kind of ecocide, ecocide uh issues or, uh, or is that something that's kind of, uh, beyond the purview of the animal legal defense fund currently?
0: Well, I'd say, uh, you know, ecocide, uh, specifically is, isn't, isn't, uh, actually a word that I, that I'd even heard before, uh, this conversation, but, but that said, you know, a big, a big part of the animal kingdom are wild animals, animals who live in the wild. And so it. Threats to the wilderness, uh, including including climate change and other environmental uh, damages are certainly really impact the, you know, the core of our of the animal legal defense funds, uh, you know, mission to, to, to protect the lives of animals who who live in the wilderness.
1: Well, you've been listening to KBC 790. My guest today, Katie Surma and Christopher Barry with the Animal Legal Defense Fund. We've been nerding out here on uh, international law and uh, the rights of nature. And I hope all of you non-lawyers out there uh, enjoyed this as much as I did. Uh, great to have you both on the program and look to have you.